everyone, and thanks for dropping in on this episode of Reading Between the Wines. I'm your hostess, Winona Glass, joined with the Psalm of the South, Keegan Moore. Howdy. We are going to talk about 800 Grapes, a novel by Laura Dave that came out in 2015. It's the fourth book that she's written at this point. She's come out with some since then, um, which we will probably do in a future podcast. But we chose 800 Grapes because, shockingly, all about wine. Yeah. (laughs) This book is based in a vineyard, which is very much what we like uh, when it comes to books because it makes it easy for us to pair a wine with it. So we start this book meeting Georgia Ford, and in true Southern fashion, Georgia Ford walks into a bar in California in her wedding dress. Of course. (laughs) And then we realize that it's a bar that's owned by her brothers, Finn and Bobby. And what I love is that Finn sees her come in, and he sets down a glass of wine and a glass of bourbon. And he says to her, (laughs) just looks at her in her wedding dress, doesn't say anything else, and says to the bourbon, this is the one you think you want. And then he points to the wine, and he says, and this is the one you'll actually drink. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Now, see, if that was me, those roles would be reversed, because I'll just drink about anything. And I really love bourbon barrel-aged wine. So, again, you're marrying two of my favorite things there when you set down bourbon and wine. So we find out that Georgia has run out on her last fitting for her wedding dress because she saw her fiance arm in arm with a very famous actress. And we seem to have a theme here lately of vineyards and famous actresses, but uh, we're going to go with it. And so we don't understand exactly why her British husband is with this famous actress until much later, but We do know that she's obviously distraught about it. So she comes home, as most people would do in this situation, in her wedding dress to her parents' vineyard called The Last Straw, which, great name. I really like that name. And The Last Straw is famous for essentially one wine called Block 14 that really put them on the map. And it got written up like a small blurb in the Wall Street Journal. And it's on, there's a shout out to the French Laundry Restaurant in LA because it's actually on their menu in this book, this Block 14 wine is. And that's kind of what they're known for. But what I really liked is that her mom is a famous or was on track to become a a famous musician, and kind of derails her career because she falls in love with her husband, and he is a vintner. So to come to terms with the fact that his wife kind of gave up her whole career to become a vintner's wife and and live in the vineyard, most of their wines, other than Block 14, are named after musical terms. So it's a way for them to marry the musical influence in their lives with the grapes and the symbiotic harmony of the earth and the concerto that happens in your mouth when everything comes together. There's a lot of ways we can play on this whole musical terms and wine working together. Yeah. I mean, Dan was all about the biodynamics, so. He was, and we're going to go into that a lot, but it seems like, I mean, it talked about how, like, they would plant the vines or plant the the seeds when the moon was in a certain phase, and they had to do it at a certain time, and he only, he sprayed the wine with, like, chamomile after the harvest to put the vines to sleep. It just seemed like there was a lot of considerations that happened with the earth and the rotation and the 
universe, that sort of thing, that produced good grapes. I thought it was very sweet. She says, here's why my mother fell in love with him. His belief at the center of his winemaking, that with work you can give something the strength at the beginning that it needs later on, before it even knows how it's going to need it. So I felt that was a nice, cute little tie-in with their love for each other and the integration of everything together. And it's true because you have to take care of the vines, especially like when you're planting them, to reap the benefits in years down the line. Exactly. And really that's true with any relationship, right? I mean, it's true with the vintners and the grapes, but it's also true in relationships in general, which we go into a lot in this book. Yes, I get the feeling, just from our conversations, that this was not your favorite book. I wanted to like it. It was just, I don't know, it was so cliche. Like, the bride shows up in her wedding dress at the bar. and There was a lot of predictability in this. Come on. But it did have a few twists and turns, I felt. There seemed to be a lot of turmoil that was happening with this family. And it, it even comes to light, not long after Georgia shows up at home, that their parents aren't even living together. Lots of infidelity. Yes. Well, kind of infidelity. I mean, the the orchestra guy could, had some issues down south. <laughs> yeah. So she never actually cheated on her husband, but emotionally, I guess she had. But it's, I don't know. I feel like everybody's in transition whenever this book starts. And... It all comes back to the vineyard. And the reason it's called 800 Grapes, which I did not know this, and I found that to be really interesting. The reason it's called 800 Grapes is because that's how many grapes it takes to make one bottle of wine. On average, it varies a lot, but yeah, that's a good number. That is, seems like a lot to me, but how many grapes does the average vine put out in a season? What a great question. Like I said, it depends on what grape we're talking about, where sure. we're growing it, if we're dry farming, you know. and Yeah. That just, I don't know, 800 grapes seems like a lot to me, but I don't know how many grapes you normally produce per acre or per vine. So it could not be that many grapes. Well, they're not like apples when they're like singular. They're in bunches True. too. So it's like it might be six bunches. Okay. That's but 800 grapes. Right. And I, I feel like grapes that are produced for wine are smaller too, not like massive big grapes that we get in the grocery store to eat. Like they seem to be a little bit more petite. Typically, yes. All right. So Georgia's struggling with her whole relationship, but then she realizes that her parents are struggling and her brothers are struggling and everyone is struggling. And then she finds out the most shocking revelation of all is that her parents have sold the vineyard. And They realize it's, like, time to move on. They're going to get divorced. She's going to go travel the world being a musician. He's going to let her. I mean, it doesn't really go into what his next role was. But he had gone over to Italy and was working with a vintner over there. So there was a lot of shock to Georgia because the vineyard has been, like, the central point of their entire lives from the unpredictability of bad harvest to are the grapes going to work together? Like, I I don't know. There's just—it just seems to me like everybody is in this kind of weird spot is where, like, the book opens up. But I think the biggest issue that Georgia has with her parents selling the vineyard is who they're selling it to. 
And this is like the big bad wolf, right? I mean, she finds out that they're selling it to Murray Grant Wines. And Murray Grant Wines is like this big corporate winery that's been buying up all these vineyards in Sonoma. I thought it was like this area outside of Sonoma that they were pioneers going to. Sonoma's a big region, so they might be in like a part where there's not a lot of other wineries, but I think it was definitely Sonoma County, at least. Another fact that Georgia, I think, is frustrated that her parents are selling out to Murray Grant Wines is because she feels like they're not going to honor the way that their dad has farmed the land for so many years. And what I really enjoyed, kind of a quote from this book, was that he kept saying that the farmer's job is to create good soil. And then from the soil, you'll get good grapes. And so he really put a lot of time, effort, and energy, especially in those early years, into creating good soil and good terroir. Exactly. For the <laughs> grapes to flourish in. And I think that goes back to the quote that you said about giving the the roots and the vines the strength that they would need before they even knew they needed it. Right. And so he had that same, like, love and passion that he put into his wines that you could feel when you drank them that perhaps Murray Grant Wine isn't going to honor. They're just going to try to crank out as much as they can, as long as they can, and then they'll burn out the soil, move on to another farm, right? I mean, it's pretty easy for them to do because they're a huge conglomerate. The issue is, is that Georgia keeps running into the grandson of Murray Grant. His name is Jacob, and he has now taken over the company. And first, we realize that he's in the bar when she shows up, um, and he's actually on a date or with his girlfriend having a date night. And she obviously makes an entrance not many times (laughs) when you're at a bar and someone in a wedding dress shows up. Without a groom or other people, (laughs) you you make an entrance, you make an impact. And Jacob keeps, like, showing up. And I don't want to say, well, I guess he is kind of rescuing her. Like, she doesn't have money for the cab home after. Yeah, (laughs) I guess her a ride. (laughs) He just kind of keeps showing up in all of these different places in her life. And she's very angry at him. And he's like, I don't even know why you're mad at me because (laughs) just because of who I work for. Like, that was my grandfather and I have a different direction I want to take this. And yes, your dad sold me the vineyard, but I intend to keep it a biodynamic vineyard. We love what he's done there. We love the wine. We love the labels. So we're we're not going to change anything. She doesn't believe him. She can't hear it. No, she's like, this is, you're going to mess up everything. And Jacob kind of becomes his integral character just to keep the story moving along. Because, again, he, I think he's a very gracious person. And especially, like, when she shows up at his office and, like, rails on him. And Leaves he's like, him out. <laughs> you do realize that this is my board of directors and you're crazy. <laughs> And I have to go explain to them, like, you just said I stole your parents' vineyard, and I didn't. I have signed contracts from everyone. It's legal. And she's like, no, I'm a corporate real estate lawyer, and I'm going to take you down. And you could tell she's very emotional. And I love that her mom is trying to talk her down off the ledge. And her mom says something that that I really resonated with when it's talking about how Georgia keeps trying to prevent people from doing something that they'll regret. And her mom says— which way is regret? Because do you regret that you spent all these years at the vineyard or do you regret that you didn't sell it earlier? 
you know, like, do you re- like what? What do you regret? Does she regret that she didn't become a musician? Does she regret that now she has that opportunity? You know, I so it, it was a really interesting perspective for like which way is regret? And she had another great quote that her mom that I loved was when she said, "Be careful what you say goodbye to," uh, because. Georgia's like dead set. She's leaving her fiance. She can't get over it. She doesn't even really know why she's mad at him, but she is. I, I don't think I, I don't know if everybody thinks that's in her best interest to say goodbye to him. Um, at least not at that point. And saying goodbye to the vineyard and saying goodbye to her brother's marriage. Like I mean, he's ready to get divorced, right? And so. <laughs> They have this family dinner because we've talked about Harvest a lot on this podcast and how Harvest is a huge deal. And we talked about the lost vintage and how the Harvest party was crazy, fun, crazy fun. But they always have, this family does like a family dinner before the Harvest party. And that was always like the most coveted part of it because it was just the family and their spouses or significant others. And they get together for the family dinner, and that's when kind of all hell breaks loose, right? Mm. I mean, that's when Bobby confronts Finn for allegedly kissing his wife because Finn and Bobby's wife were friends before. That's actually how Bobby met his wife was through his brother. And she's kind of in a bad place. She's not feeling... She's feeling rejected, lonely, all the things because she has twins and they've like taken over her life. Bobby's at work all the time at the bar and Finn's her friend that she can depend on and she just feels like herself again around him, like pre-kids. But Bobby gets mad at Finn instead of at the situation that he's responsible for, like for owning his part in it. Right. Gets mad at Finn because that's easier, right? So those two guys like start having a fist fight at dinner then we also find out that the fiancé was hanging out with the famous actress because he has a daughter with her that he didn't know about. Just discovered recently. <laughs> yes, like that day that she saw him. And I did think it was kind of, I don't know. I loved the fact that when her fiancé saw her walk out of the dress shop and sees her with Mich- with uh, the famous actress, Michelle, I loved the fact that his first response to her was, you are magnificent. Like, you look gorgeous. Completely, like, doesn't even realize, like, what this situation looks like to her. He is so focused on her when she walks out. I was like, oh, you are such a kind guy, but you're in a bad spot, right? (laughs) (laughs) You've you've been caught in a very odd predicament. And I, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember, I don't remember if Georgia knew that he had been in a relationship with her, that he'd even known her, the actress, prior to this moment where they see them on the road together. I think it was referenced that Okay, he was with somebody famous. And- yeah, but it was vague. I right, mean, it was yeah. passing. You know, they're in the process of moving to London. He's just gotten this big promotion, and so she's going to give up her corporate job, and she's moving to London as well. And comes to find out that, like, the house that he's got for them is, like, right down the road from her. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of set up his entire life so that he can be a part of his daughter's life, but he hasn't even told Georgia that he has a daughter. And so that's a kind of a big deal. And I understand his side of it that he's trying to, like, process all this and make sure it's an easy transition for Georgia when he does tell her. But I also feel like he left her out of a lot of it. And he was like, okay, so this is what's happening. I have a kid. We're going to live down the street from her. 
by the way, it's in London, and it's all going to be fine. Like, we're all going to be one big, happy, weird family. Then she's got a lot to just accept, and she's not willing to accept it. So through that dinner, everybody departs. Everybody bids each other farewell. Like, they decide they're going to go pick the grapes and they because they pick the grapes at night. So they're like, we just had this big fight. But again, as we pointed out during harvest, there's work to be done, and we have to do the work. So— Dad ends up having a heart attack in the field and has to go to the ER. So that brings the family back together and find out that this is kind of why his mom and his dad have had these issues is because this is not the first time this has happened. Apparently, he has a bad heart, and that's why they needed to sell the vineyard because he needed less stress in his life. his health. And the vineyard is not an easy life. And we have another issue in that— Apparently, their mom's lasagna is pretty, like, life-changing because it's at least twice in this book that mom's lasagna is referenced. (laughs) And let me tell you, I could go for some lasagna today. Right now. (laughs) (laughs) The first time the mom kind of brings it, it's a— bribe to get everybody to come over. She's like, I made lasagna, and everybody's like, I'm there, Mom. Got it. Whatever. (laughs) Whatever you need, I'm there. The second time, they find the lasagna that she's left for the harvest party, and they cook it in the cottage— but mom comes in and is like, you have to come help. Like, you, what are you guys doing in here? Are you trying to, like, shirk your responsibilities? And they forget about the lasagna. So dad has a heart attack. I know. They forget about <laughs> like, the lasagna you, burns. Yeah. And because the lasagna burns, so, again, dad's had a heart attack. He's on his way to the hospital. All this is happening. They're still trying to pick the grapes. And now what happens? The cottage catches cottage on fire. On fire. <laughs> so, again, we're all worried about the grapes, the Fire department's on their way, and now it starts to rain. (laughs) They're all concerned because they haven't picked the grapes yet from Block 14, and they usually pick those grapes after the harvest party. And so Jacob from Murray Grant Wines keeps saying, like, they need to pick the grapes. They need to pick the grapes. And they're like, no, it's not time yet. It's not time. And then it starts to rain, and I guess the rain is going to ruin the grapes if they don't pick them before the rain, like— Gets in there. You get bloated grapes, and then you're diluting the beautiful juice that you've been working on. So now it becomes even more of a skirmish to get everything done. And I don't know. I just felt like this whole book was—I was, I had anxiety through this entire book because it was always something going on, always something happening. And all I really wanted at the end of this was lasagna. Yeah. And wine. <laughs> <laughs> Because I feel like at the end, everybody leaves. Ben leaves. Ben is the fiancé. Ben goes and has his—goes to London, pursues his relationship with the actress and his daughter. Finn leaves because he decides this is not a good place for him. It's not working out. Bobby tries to work on his relationship with his wife. And then in a very odd, weird twist of fate, her parents get back together and Georgia buys the original vineyard, like the original vineyard that her dad had purchased 30 years ago from Jacob. Then they start dating. I'm like, wait, you, he called you crazy and rightfully so. Pretty fair. Because but- <laughs> you were not acting in your best sane self. However, I don't know. I just, I, I, this book felt very predictable. Like I knew what was going to happen next. And I mean, other than I was sad that the lasagna got burned and that the grapes were still on the vine when the rain came, nothing in this book really shocked me. Jacob wasn't a good chef. He, like, tries to make spaghetti and, like, (laughs) spaghetti, right? Like, it's not that difficult of a thing to make. (laughs) And he 
It's like, oh, we're going to have. Because he's the CEO of this vineyard conglomerate. Murray Grant. Yes. <laughs> Which. <laughs> yeah. Did Murray Grant remind you of any other winery you've heard of? Well, I feel like in today's day and age that honestly there's like hundreds four of or, thousands. Well, there's there's hundreds of thousands of brands, but Fair, fair, fair. I feel like they're probably owned by like five companies. Interesting you say that. So when I read Murray Grant, like my brain processed that immediately as Murphy Good. Okay. And so they were in the news, I think it was 2020 or 2021, and they ended up getting like 7,000 applicants because they were like recruiting for this, for a job. Oh, really? So it was like weird that like CBS News was talking about Murphy Good Wines, but they're owned by Jackson Family Wines, which Mm -hmm. acquired them Mm -hmm. just like Jacob is doing, right? Sure. Uh, In 2006. And they make more than 6 million cases a year. Cases. And that's Jackson Family Wines. Okay. So, but like that's where my brain went. I was like, oh, Murray Grant, huh? So why (laughs) were they in the news for recruiting 7,000 They were just looking for a job and it was like coronavirus time. So they were, people were sending in their... Okay. Uh, and, and it was like a six-figure job. For it was like, a social media type. Exactly. Hype. But it was like $100,000 for eight months of work or whatever. To drink wine? You know, to go work for Murphy Good. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I mean, this book came out in 2015. That happened in 2020. But I do feel like there is a trend in a lot of these that if you aren't huge— then you're really small. Like there's no medium-sized vineyards. Like you're either a 5,000 cases or a 2 million cases vineyard or company brand. Is that fair or? I mean, there's some in the middle, but I certainly think that has a lot of truth behind it. But Mm -hmm. it's ultimately your farmers relying on the whims of Mother Nature Mm -hmm. and wine's not always profitable. And corporate farming is becoming a bigger and bigger thing. Indeed, and yeah. Just in our nation as it, as it is, um, there are more and more corporate farms out there than there are independent farmers. And that's... Unfortunately, the truth. Yes. That seems to be the way that our nation is moving. Well, on that note... You're going to pour us some wine, and we are going to talk about it uh, when we come back. Sounds good. Welcome back. All right, Keegan, you've poured us a gorgeous red. Tell me more about it. Today we are drinking a 2018 Pei Pinot Noir from the Sonoma Coast. So Pei is an interesting name for a winery. Is there some history behind that? Well, it was started in 1996 by Nick Pei and his wife, Vanessa Wong. Um, But they did joke about their premature baldness at one point. And they were considering taking an aerial photo and labeling the wine toupee. Oh, that is a great play on names. (laughs) (laughs) But they just went with the traditional last name instead. Okay. So um, pay, and that's P-E-A-Y, correct? correct. Okay, pay, wine, and this, what kind of red are we drinking? Pinot Noir. A Pinot Noir, okay. Tell me more. It's a family-run business, and husband and wife operation, as I said, the brother of Nick, Andy, sells the wine and runs the business. 
They own 53 acres or 21 hectares. It is a hilltop vineyard located above a river, and it's in the far northwestern corner of the Sonoma coast. So what's pretty interesting is they have what they call blocks, Mm -hmm. and there's 20 to 25 separate blocks that they harvest every year, and they have 13 different clones of Pinot Noir. So talk to me more about this blocks, because we had block 14, which was the wine in the book, and now this winery talks a lot about blocks. So do they just, is it like a designated area of the vineyard that grows something specific, or does that mean something else in Yeah, essentially terms? it's, um, there's a bunch of different microclimates. Okay. And with them, they also have different clones of Pinot. So they're all picking them separately. They go through multiple passes. I mean, as we were talking before, with corporate, sometimes you just go all one night and right. harvest. But they're, sure. they're doing this up to 25 times. Holy cow. 25 right. different times. 25 that different they, lots. That they harvest right. at different times. And they do have about 8 to 10 full-time employees mm-hmm. in the vineyard. So that kind of helps because... A lot of issues is like getting workers there at the right time for harvest. They select wines for their named estates, to which I think they have five. And this is like kind of the blend of them. The one, the Pinot that we're drinking is the blend of- Yeah, we're just drinking the Sonoma Coast. Of their five estates. Uh, They have one estate. They just call them named estate wines. So they have like an Alanis and a scallop and a shelf. But it's 100% estate fruit and 100% free run juice. They kind of go through what they call a blind process when they're tasting and combining. They don't know which wine comes from where. They don't know necessarily which clone they're tasting. So they're trying to get the best expression of the certain lots into the wine. Besides Pinot, they also have eight acres of Syrah, seven acres of Chardonnay, and then a few acres of Viognier, Roussan, and Marsan. Do they use those primarily as filler, like to mix or blend with the Pinot, or do do they sell it? Like most Pinot Noir worldwide, it's 100% Pinot. You're very rarely adding in anything else. They're just making different bottlings. Um, They are certified organic, fish-friendly farming, and integrated pest management, which means they have to attend classes through the Sonoma County Grape Growers Association. But they kind of, they didn't start out organically Mm -hmm. farming. It was kind of like a marketing scheme when organics kind of first started. And they eventually decided to switch to organic farming in 2003, but they didn't get certified in 2016 because of that. Oh, wow. Um, There's kind of like a negative connotation when it comes to organic wine. A lot of people seem to think it won't last because of the requirements that you can't use sulfur. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people don't want to buy a couple-year-old wine that's organic. It doesn't age well because there's no sulfur? Well, sulfur is a preservative. Okay. So it's like making a wine with no preservative that's not necessarily shelf-stable. But we can get into biodynamics and then come back to kind of the rest of how they make the wine and the wine itself. Um, So biodynamics obviously played a huge role in this book because they talked a lot about, again, the phases of the moon and when they planted and what the three different uh, stages that their dad would put 
different organic blends, like lavender or something, on the vines. Preparations. Yes. <laughs> yes. Would um, For the next stage. So it would either prep them for sleep, prep them for growing, prep them for picking. Uh, but it was all very, almost like commonly, it was common terms. Like I knew all of the things that he was using. It wasn't. I mean, it's, yeah, it's flowers and... It's things, manure. It's all well, stuff it's things we're we would ingest. Familiar with and things we would ingest too, like chamomile tea or lavender, or you know, I mean, we drink lavender in cocktails and things. So it was all things that I felt like are commonly used and easy to pronounce, and <laughs> things we're familiar with. Versus some of these other books we've read have had very, uh, like the one in the Lost Vintage. It talked the the whole chemical equation thing that they needed. Oh yeah. That was the code to break in. Uh, so, again, I just felt I didn't know any of those terms. But lavender and chamomile, I'm very familiar with. There you go. Um, so, biodynamics is kind of like organic plus. Mm-hmm. So, I just want to, like, briefly touch on organic. So, if it's a certified organic wine, it is excluding the use of synthetic chemicals. So, all those fantastic things that end in acides, herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, or fertilizers. So you can't add sulfur, but it is a naturally occurring process of fermentation. So you can have sulfur in the end product, but it's less than 10 parts per million. So then if you see made with organic grapes on a label, they can use up to 100 parts per million of sulfur. It also doesn't require the yeast to be organic, so you can still buy cultured yeast. Um, but sulfur, like, as I said, is a natural preservative, so it prevents the wine from oxidizing. So organic wines traditionally should be drank sooner and not left to age. Is that fair or is that not fair? That's pretty fair. They, some organic producers say that their wines can age, but it's ultimately like... Who knows? Yeah, mm-hmm. you're kind of testing it. Uh, Less than 3% of California's wine is certified organic. Compared to France, it's about 9%. Biodynamics, so it's like all those requirements, but it's like a holistic approach to farming. Mm -hmm. And they care about the influence of the cosmos. And a lot of it deals with animal husbandry. So biodynamics is based on the theories of Rudolf Steiner. He was an Austrian philosopher conceived this idea in 1924. So this was between two world wars. In He's Europe. had a heavy influence on my life. <laughs> Has he? No. <laughs> um, he spent much of his adult life in Germany, and he saw the influence of industrial farming and monoculture and the new use of all these wonderful chemicals and pesticides on a large scale. And the Austrian farming industry asked him to create a series of lectures on an ecological and sustainable approach to agriculture. And he ended up writing over 30 books and giving over 6,000 lectures. Wow. Um, The premise for his teachings. Do tell the premise for his teachings. Spirit is never without matter and matter is never without spirit. And another kind of catalyst for this movement was biodynamics 
Well, let's go back to that. So spirit is never without matter, and matter is never without spirit. So that's like saying the wind is never without air, and air is never without wind. There are influences around us that might not be matter, and you can't— To quote, to use a corporate colloquial for right now, it's synergistic. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But biodynamics was banned in Germany under the Third Reich. Oh, and so that kind of upset some people, and they ended up moving out of Germany and around the world, which because actually ended Hitler, up helping spread the movement of biodynamics. Hitler really liked to purchase wine to use it. Well, he liked to confiscate wine in yeah, order to sell drink it. it. He did but. not drink it, but he used he sold it to other countries in order to pay for his war. So that popularized it because as people are leaving Germany, they now want to do biodynamic farming as kind of a middle finger to everything that Hitler and the Third Reich is doing. Is exactly. that fair? Yeah. And it took decades to be truly understood and implemented. But Well, when you're starting over and it takes five years <laughs> to cultivate the earth that you're going to plant the grapes into, that's dedication. I mean, that's five years of, like, no income but just putting money into the land to make sure that you eventually have a crop. That's, exactly. That's dedication. So, are you ready to get into the peculiar numbered homeopathic preparations? I have waited all day. (laughs) Nothing would make me happier right now. So just as a starter, you can buy these if you don't feel like making them at home yourself at your winery. (laughs) Just throwing that out there. I still cannot get over the fact that there's a catalog of yeast that you can just go through. Cultured yeast, I love the catalog of cultured yeast. So now tell us more about... That word you just said. Okay, and another caveat is um, it's believed that animal organs enable medicinal properties of the substances used in these preparations. So there will be some animal organs involved as well. So these are not vegan then? Exactly. (laughs) So these preparations are made into sprays and mixed with water, and they go through vortexing. Ooh. (laughs) So you take the liquid and you vigorously stir it in one direction and then the other for up to an hour before you use it. Okay. That's like vortexing the energy of the universe into your preparation. I feel like you would have really strong arm muscles after doing that. Or did they do it with the machine? Oh, no. That would be... That would definitely... (laughs) I I don't know why I even asked that question. That would be counterintuitive to the earth and nature. Okay, so they're numbered um, 500 through 508. 500, 501, 508 are sprays, and 502 to 507 are preparations to be added to your compost. Oh, okay. Number 500, cow horn manure. Cow horn manure. Not just cow manure, but cow horn manure. Right, so you take fresh cow manure, and you put it in a cow horn, and you bury it in the winter months. And this is supposed to enhance the life of the soil and the relationship between the soil and the plants. And you spray it in the afternoon once you make your product of it. 501 is cow horn silica, which is finely ground quartz put in a cow horn and buried in the summer months. And this increases plant immunity and enhances photosynthesis. And you spray on the plants at daybreak. And like so every day or just when 
Mercury is in retrograde or? Definitely you have to follow the moon phases. Heavily influenced in everything biodynamic related. Right. Okay. So the next ones are not necessarily required. Um, Preparations 500 and 501 must be applied annually. Okay. The others are to be employed whenever the compost is produced. So if you're certified biodynamic through Demeter in the United States, it requires at least once every three years for the compost. So 502 to 507 is once every three years minimum. annually. Annually for 500 and 501. So 502 is the yarrow flower. You just take the blossoms and you place them in a stag's bladder (laughs) and expose them to the sun in the summer and then bury them in the winter. I feel like this is a Harry Potter, like, (laughs) book of spells or potions. The yarrow flower is supposed to help the soil intake substances or elements. Okay. 503 is chamomile flower. This is placed in cow intestine and buried in the winter, and it's supposed to help stabilize plant nutrients, predominantly nitrogen, and invigorate plant growth. I guess my other question is, like, how many cow and livers do you need to plant in, what, 21 hectares? Right? I mean, you definitely got to have some animals that you're taking care of on the side. But, like, these are the uh, compost ones, so once every three years. But Oh, okay. And I guess if you're putting it, well, but you're burying it, but you're putting it in the compost and then spraying it. I I don't know. I'm trying to think of the logistics. Like, how many of these do you need to bury and then? I mean, you're talking the significance of, like, grams of substances sure. on an entire and hectares you dig and hectares it up, of vineyards. like decompose. Well, so. yeah, then you have to make it into a liquid form to spray. Right. So, yeah. Fun stuff. Uh, 504 <laughs> is stinging nettle, which is placed in the earth for the entire year from fall to fall, and it helps develop sensitivity in the soil and helps stabilize nitrogen. 505 is oak bark placed in the cavity of cow or sheep skull and buried in the winter. These poor and cows. Moist soil. Mm, and then we dug love up. Moist stuff. Has to be moist. Um, and this is supposed to help increase resistance to disease. So this is supposed to help because you can't use any herbicides or pesticides. Sure. sure. 506 is dandelion flowers that are rolled into mesentery. You know what that is? Not a clue, but I haven't had a clue of most of the terms you've said in the past three minutes. So this is an organ that attaches the small intestine to the abdominal wall. And they're typically taking this from a cow. The, Poor cow. The lovely cow and placed in the earth in the winter. And it's supposed to stimulate the relationship between silica and potassium so that silica can attract cosmic forces to the soil. That is... Very important in my life. <laughs> yeah. Almost through. 507 is valerian. It's an herb. Uh, that, that one I know. That one um, helps you sleep. It's a root often used to treat sleep disorders and anxiety. So typically milled, juiced, and fermented. And this is supposed to be for protection. It stimulates micro life to make phosphorus available. And then 508 is horsetail flower. It's supposed to prevent fungal disease and balance the water element. And this one is sprayed on the soil, uh, compost, and the plants themselves. Mm. So, fun stuff. So, Demeter USA is the only certifier for biodynamic farms and products in the United States. 
It is named for the Greek goddess of agriculture. Nice. And it's part of a worldwide organization, which is Demeter International, that was first formed in 1928. And so viticulture is a small portion of these certified farms. Um, But it's really difficult. One aspect, you have to leave the vines fallow at regular intervals. And what does that mean? You just let them go. Like you're just leaving beautiful, precious grapes grapes. on the vine. Fallow. Yeah. You just let them. Yeah. You just let them rot right there. Yep. 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 So potential bottles of wine just crying on the vine to be made into something that I'll drink. Exactly. That hurts. That hurts a lot. So obviously GMOs are strictly prohibited. I can imagine. Both in the seeds as well as the processes used of the 8500 to 508. Preparations. Yes. (laughs) Chemical inputs are prohibited with the exception of copper, which kind of ties into the lost vintage, Mm -hmm. which is used to fight mildew, and sulfur, but they suggest small doses. The entire property must be farmed biodynamically, and you have to leave at least 10% of the land for natural habitat. So if you own 100 acres, 10% has to be... 10 acres is just growing wild. Trees. Probably for your cows to... (laughs) Roam. Exactly. And your sheep. Um, And then they have recommendations. So hand harvesting is recommended. Um, As I said before, up to 100 parts per million of sulfur dioxide is allowed for dry wines. You can use a little more for sweet wines because they are a little more susceptible. They need a little bit more most of the time. Indigenous yeasts are required, so you can't go to your catalog and get your cultured Ugh. yeast. Except, and they kind of leave an out, which I appreciate. If you get a stuck fermentation, okay, then you can use you can use a little a cultured yeast. Yeah, you can use a little Kickstarter there to get your yeast back on track. Um, but you can't add malolactic bacteria, <laughs> enzymes, or powdered tannins, uh, and you can use biodynamic egg whites. Mm. So organic and biodynamic, not necessarily vegan. Correct. Okay. Just trying to understand all the terminology. They're that. definitely using animals. They are definitely so using So I would anim- say it's kind of like anti-vegan. Poor cows. Yes. I mean, so, you're like using the whole life of the cow, though. You're not you necessarily are. just killing him for his mesentery. Right. Or his head or his skull. Liver. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we'll just hope that you harvested the cow for other reasons and are ensuring that you use all parts of the cow. Exactly. In your processes. Full life cycle. Exactly. Exactly. Um, they do regulate the use of plastic containers. Um, so you can't get a biodynamic wine in a Tetra Pak or a bag in a box, a.k.a. box wine. So it has to be, well, because glass is infinitely recyclable, so they are going to want you to use glass. Is that fair? That's fair. And then they recommend not using oak to overpower the flavor of the wine, but there's no regulation. Um, so there's an app. Of course there's an app. <laughs> there's a couple. Um, when Wine Tastes Best. And it's based on the research of Maria Thune. She lived in Germany for over 50 years and produced an annual biodynamic sowing and planting calendar, which is now produced by her son. And this considers all aspects of the lunar and solar cycles, star constellations, and planetary movements. Mm. And she linked all that to the growth of particular parts of the plant. 
So there's four types of days, root, flower, leaf, and fruit. And fruit and flower days tend to be the best days to drink. So what is today? Today's a root day, which is the worst. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think this wine tastes pretty good on a root day. It's not that the wine necessarily would taste bad. It's that it's more expressive and exuberant on flower and fruit days. I feel like this is an experiment asking to be made for us, that we need to try a wine, a biodynamically sourced wine, on a root day and then a flower day. Um, so a little anecdotal note, I, I have some acquaintances, friends that are uh, wine sellers and work for distributors, and they sell the same wines and taste the same wines all the time, you know, just sure. different places. That makes sense. And so this lady one day was like, it's like a super fruity Pinot like we're having. And she was like, it just wasn't right this one day. And she couldn't figure it out. She thought it was the bottle. So she opened another bottle and it was the same way. Well, come to find out it was a root day. So Was it a biodynamic wine? Absolutely not. Okay, so there's so this calendar that has been produced is saying that it regardless of the farming of the wine, there are some wines that are more expressive on flower and fruit days. Correct. Yeah. Than there are on leaf and root days. And this is determined by and this is on the app. This is on the app. And so so this is you need to have an app to figure out what days you can drink your wine. The only thing that's unfortunate about the app is that they want like 550 for the year to look in the future. So there's another app. It's okay. a it's a gardening app. It's called Moon and Garden. Moon and Garden. Um but there's a calendar that shows which days are which. So it'll be like afternoon it's a fruit day, but before noon it's going to be a flower day. So and there's more opportunity to drink on Moon and Garden than there is on the previous app. Well, when wine tastes best, it just says, good day for wine. <laughs> <You know>? so, <laughs> Every um, day is a good day for exactly. wine in my world. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is determined on the physical star constellation and not the astrological signs used in horoscopes. So it's the physical star constellation that the moon is passing through. Okay, so that makes sense then why morning and afternoon would be different, different yeah. because it's passing through different constellations. Okay, I, I'll buy that for a dollar. So fruits, number one. Okay. Sagittarius, Aries, Leo. Uh, flower is number two, Libra, Aquarius, Gemini. And then three is Scorpio, Pisces, Cancer is leaf. And four is root is Virgo, Capricorn, Taurus. And then they do mention that some older wines may actually benefit from being drunk on leaf days if you're having an older vintage wine. But there's a pretty strong consensus that root days are the worst days to enjoy wine. Okay. And we are enjoying wine on a root day. Absolutely. So we are not enjoying these <laughs> I think these it's wines. pretty fruity. So We're not enjoying know. this wine to its fullest, but we are going to enjoy the wine that is presented to us or how the wine presents itself to us on this root day. So I did want to mention Nicolas Jolie. Uh, He owns a winery in the Sauvignon region of the Loire. He's one of the leading advocates of biodynamic viticulture. And he he now does seminars and they're in pretty, pretty high demand. But does this work? Well, the consensus seems to pretty much be in summary, yes. Okay. But it's also... I was going to be very disappointed if you said (laughs) it depends. Well, yeah. (laughs) Always. (laughs) It always depends in wine. Like any good lawyer or accountant, the answer is always it depends. Not (laughs) always. But a lot of it, I think, 
is because you're converting from conventional farming mm-hmm. to biodynamics. There's not a lot of studies where where you converted from conventional to organic versus conventional to biodynamic. And then another one too, I think, is ultimately like you're spending a lot more time in the vineyard. So yeah. there's no matter what you're doing with your preparations, there's a lot more care and time and effort and that cows. goes into and cows and sheep. So in 1988, a soil microbiologist did some research that showed the levels of uh, microbial life in the vineyard topsoils were significantly greater in organic and biodynamic plots versus conventionally farmed ones. In 1995, there was a review of different studies published that examined biodynamics, and the conclusion was that biodynamic systems have better soil quality, lower crop yields, and equal or greater net returns per hectare than conventional. And then there was another uh, lab study done with biodynamic preparations on compost development. And the biodynamically treated one showed higher temperatures, faster maturation, and more nitrates than the placebo composts. Um, So then in 2002, some Swiss researchers published a study of 21 years in science pretty reputable magazine Mm -hmm. showing biodynamic farming had slightly lower yields, higher biodiversity, and greater numbers of soil microbes. So they're all kind of showing what Dan was preaching. Like it's really all about the life in the soil. The terroir. The terroir and what that does for the grapes. Mm -hmm. I also just want to mention natural wine. It's a little controversial. It's kind of like food. If you see like Natural green beans, it really doesn't mean anything. There's mm-hmm. no exact definition or rules you have to abide by. Mm-hmm. The latest trend is regenerative agriculture. It's another holistic method that views the farm as a part of a larger ecosystem. And it emphasizes strengthening the health of the soil and increasing the natural biodiversity. Um, so they have three pillars, soil health, animal welfare, and social fairness. And then there's also sustainable viticulture, which is the vineyard is self-sustaining and in harmony with everything around it. It's also kind of unregulated. But they also may govern how much water you use, are you being energy efficient, what you're doing to prevent pests, Mm -hmm. cover crops, mechanization, planting, and even labor practices. So let's drink. Okay. You said magic words for (laughs) me. (laughs) We kind of already mentioned a little bit of the pay history. Mm-hmm. Um, they are. I do love the two pay. I think they should go with. <laughs> they should have I mean, gone I know with that My opinion doesn't matter, but I feel like they should go with the two pay. They aren't necessarily believers in biodynamics, but I challenge all of our listeners to find a biodynamic Pinot Noir from a single block in Sonoma. <laughs> if you find one, let me know. But they are certified organic. They don't till their soils. They grow grass as a cover crop. A little fun fact, they use biodiesel to run their tractors. Oh, wow. So they smell French fries as they work. (laughs) (laughs) So you Um, end the day craving wine and French fries. This is fantastic together. (laughs) They were only started in 96, so their vine age is around 20 plus years old right now. So they are a little young. But we're, as I said before, far corner of the Sonoma coast. So Mm -hmm. it's cold, cold climate. They're about four miles from the Pacific Ocean, which also means it gets kind of wet, which means they have some issues with 
Moisture mold. and diseases. Exactly. They have moist soil. They have very moist soil. Moist air. Moist the, air and moist soil. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the Pinot Noir is around 600 to 775 feet elevation, which is around 180 to 240 meters. Um, the vineyard is next to the San Andreas Fault. Infamous in the wine world or for geologists, for everybody else, it was created <laughs> by the subduction of the Pacific and the Farallon Plates under the North American Plate. Geology's great. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> geology rocks. <laughs> yes, geology rocks. <laughs> the vineyard's part of an uplifted seabed, so they have a lot of marine sedimentary soil. It's fine. It's silty, kind of sandy loam with a little bit of clay. They often harvest mid to late September, Sometimes in October and sometimes at the beginning of November. Wow, that seems like a really long harvest period. Long harvest. But they're not dealing with extreme heat. Well, and we also talked about that they could do it 25 times. Yeah, so they have to like, yeah. I could, that's so that last take a while. lot might end up being Especially the if they're doing it by hand. I mean, that's going to take a while. So. Exactly. So this is not a biodynamic wine, and it is unfined and unfiltered, so this is vegan. Okay. About 4% whole cluster, and it's aged uh, on the lees for 11 months and 25% new French oak barrels. And I think it's delicious, mm-hmm. um, but it also has some pretty good ageability because it's got some really nice acidity here. The alcohol is only 13.2%. So I think this is pretty expressive. I definitely smell butter. Like, the right away, butter. I got butter. Like, it was... I mean, it does see some time in oak. It most likely went through malolactic conversion, so that might be what you're smelling. It's pretty light in color. Very much so. It looked like grape juice when you poured it. I mean, it could very easily have been grape juice. Definitely leaning toward red and not purple. Mm-hmm. I also got some orange notes, kind of like uh, blood orange zest. A little bit of it's a little bit of funky, but it's very fruit forward. Blackberry, cranberry, cranberry mm-hmm. sauce. Um, oh, so like Thanksgiving dinner in a glass. Yeah, Pinot Noir is a really good Thanksgiving dinner wine. Okay. Or gamay, but yeah. So there you go. For those of you planning Thanksgiving dinner in the next couple of months, you may want to consider a Pinot Noir to go with your cranberry sauce. I think it's pretty well balanced. It's got some spice on it. And I, I think this winery has a bunch of potential for the future. I feel like okay. they really care about what they're doing. We might see more complexity as the vines get older or if we had cellared this and this mm-hmm. was a little bit older. But yeah, like they don't necessarily – some people see biodynamics as like religion slash cult. You know, mm-hmm. like there's definitely okay. some good things that come from religion. Right. If you abide to the principles, but like – Beating it into people sure. is probably not the best way to go. That's so the, fair. A lot of people do compare it to that. But, I mean, you know, these, they're using solar power at the vineyard and the winery, and they're using the biodiesel. And, mm-hmm. you know, they changed their mind on organic farming and kind of came out about that. And I do want to mention this is around $40 a bottle. Okay. But, you know, most Pinot isn't cheap. Some other just substitutions, if you can't find this pay Pinot Noir on the market, uh, Arno Roberts is another excellent producer in Sonoma. Bench, Literai. And then if you want to go the biodynamic route, uh, Chapoutier is pretty big producer and pretty mass distributed. 
um, from France, and then Nicolas Jolie, as I mentioned before. Okay. Um, so biodynamics is becoming more accepted trend-wise and being sought after by customers, but as we said before, it's a tiny fraction of the total wine production. So... Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this adventure through biodynamics and learning all about 800 grapes in a bottle and everything that biodynamics and the universe bring to our wine. We want to send a shout out to not only our Patreon and Anchor subscribers, but also a gracious thank you to our audio engineer, Colin Kasten, and our producer, Stacey Grow. So until we meet again, always keep your glass half full. Cheers. Cheers.